and welcome to Business Without the podcast powered by Ori Clark, the UK's leading law and accountancy firm. My name's Dominic Frisbee, and alongside me today is my co-host and partner at Ori Clark, Juliet Ori, who is on a mission to bring the fascinating business stories that the firm's clients are living to a wider audience. And remember, if you like what we do here, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify so you never miss an episode. Now, with that being said, hello, Juliet, how are you doing? Who's our guest today? And what are we going to be talking about? Hello, Dominic. Well, this week's guest is Neil Smith, a longtime friend and client who has a career legacy spanning over 40 years in public transport. When I first met Neil, he described himself as a bus driver to me. He is originally from Sydney, Australia, graduated with a bachelor's in arts and double history, then went headfirst into the bus transport business, where he ended up building Tower Transit. Tower Transit is Australia's biggest passenger carrying company, currently carrying a whopping, are you ready, 380 million people per year. The company also has operations in Singapore, London and LA. And I first met Neil when he moved from Australia to London in 2013, when he initially bought into First Group, the UK's leading provider in transport services. Think big red buses. This is what he began to do as he was deciding to slow down from work by a bus company. Now, alongside being a non-executive director, a lot of Neil's time is spent working with Relay Trust, a charity that operates in post-conflict areas of Africa, providing local community leadership training, amongst other great initiatives. Neil, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. I'm delighted to hear, Neil, that in that illustrious CV, one of the things you don't do is uh, drive transporter ships in the Suez Canal. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, it's a mystery how they're going to get that one out, isn't it? Um, how are you coping with, I imagine in the transport industry, you travel quite a bit. And, and I gather from our sort of pre-conversation, you've, you've, in all the travelling, you've spent quite a bit of time this year in quarantine. Tell us about that. Well, quarantine's an interesting experience because you're pulled out of your normal routine. You're pulled out of a lot of the pressures that you're under. And on the surface, you've got absolutely nothing to do. And that, that's threatening, but it can also be creative. It gives you a chance to think and to move in directions that you wouldn't have otherwise. Travel is fantastic now because if you manage to get up the front of a plane, once you used to get a seat, now you get annoyed if you don't get a row uh, and often you get three rows. So um, that, that's a rather comfortable way to fly to Singapore or Sydney. The industry won't be able to sustain itself for long, though, if that remains the case for much longer. I think... I think about a lot of uh, passenger transport worldwide, there's a, there's a Alice in Wonderland sense going on where everything still looks a little bit normal, but what's going on under the surface is economically devastating. And I, I, I don't think we've seen anything like the repercussions that are going to come through when all the money taps are turned off and people have to live in the real world again. Tell us, tell us about that. What are these repercussions going to be? Are lots of these companies going to go bust? Are lots of people going to find themselves without a job? Well, I think there is going to be a significant change in passenger transport in particular, in, in 
anything where groups of people were travelling. I think cities are going to change in the way they function. International travel is going to change. I think a lot of the people who live off endlessly growing air travel, for example, uh, are not going to have a living. So I think there's very big restructuring coming down the line in the airline industry, in tourism, in airports, in, uh, in bus travel, in rail travel. In what ways do you think travel is going to change? I've got some of my own ideas, which we can talk about in a moment, but, but I'm interested to hear where you think it's going. Well, the big issue, which I don't think we know what's happening, but it's what is going to happen to work. And I think there's a lot of speculation and self-appointed gurus here, but if you look at some of the evidence, uh, you can see that real estate patterns are changing. So the value of property in cities all around the world and inner cities is dropping. The value of regional property is going up. So clearly there is going to be a, a move of people out of cities. People are hoping that they don't have to go to work every day. And that's why they're moving into regional areas. Now, whether or not that's true, people are making the move now. And you can see that in the real estate market. So I think that's one of the few factual things that's going on. My feeling about what will happen to work is that if you take, say, people who work for us, like we might have someone who's an accounts clerk in London who used to travel two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon to get to work to earn a very modest wage. Now, you can see someone like that will be doing some of their work at home because what they do is online, what they do is something that you can do perfectly well. But I think anyone that is involved in, in something creative, in something innovative, in, in teamwork, they have to be together. They have to be face-to-face. And so I think there will be a change, but I think it'll be on the edges of the week. So my guess is that Wednesday is going to have as many people in the office as ever within 12 months, but Monday's not. And Friday, we found in London, everyone sneaked out at lunchtime anyway. I think that's going to, that trend is going to continue. If you look at Australia, on our public transport, we're now carrying between 70 and 85% of the people we were before the lockdown, and that number's going up. Now, Australia wasn't traumatised by COVID. Uh, you know, they'd have a lockdown for one infection. So it's a very different experience than the UK. But I think the daily commute is going to become more flexible. I think there's going to be less people on public transport. So look for an increase in emissions and greenhouse gases. I think there's going to be a lot more cars on the road and a lot more trucks on the road. So cities will be more congested and they'll be busier on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But all of that devastates the economics of it because if you think of a train, you invest a lot of money in a train, you're going to run it five days a week, but there's going to be less people on it. So same costs, less revenue. Yeah, transport for London is just bleeding money. And that, that it's going, I think, they make their money out of the tube, and the tube is one of the areas that's suffering the most. Um, and I think it's a long time before we're comfortable again standing nose to nose with a commuter for 20 minutes uh, in a winter tube train. I, I think there, there is going to be change like that. Mm. I've described COVID many times as the great accelerator. 
and because it's brought forward so many things that were going to happen anyway. And I do believe we were going towards, for example, remote working. That was, and COVID's just normalized it and enabled it to happen. What might have happened over a 10 year period to happen within a year. I'm, I'm jumping at the numbers, but you, you take my point. But one of the things that surely is coming in the future is, and maybe I'm wrong here and you've got a different view, but it seems inevitable sooner or later is this thing of the driverless car and the internet of things. And people are going to want driverless cars if it means they don't get infected when they use their transport. And if I'm reading the arguments correctly, the main barriers at the moment to driverless cars are more regulatory than technical. I might be wrong in that and I'm ready to be corrected. Um, so what about the adoption of the, the driverless electric vehicle? Now, I'm a sceptic on driverless vehicles. We've operated a few. Uh, we operated one at Heathrow for a while. I think there are two big trends coming with cars. One is electrification and one is driverless. I think electrification is coming much faster than anyone realises. And I think driverless is coming slower than people realise. And what you, will, what you will first see in driverless are things such as convoying trucks. Perhaps, perhaps there's an opportunity for driverless cargo ships in the Suez Canal. <laughs> Yeah, that would be a good idea, yeah. But in, in the US, you can drive from Boston to Los Angeles and never go through an intersection. So you can see the logic of a convoy of trucks moving from Boston to Los Angeles instead of a whole lot of trucks, each one with a driver. And I think you will see that. Um, it, it's, also, it's very common in Australia on the mines that the trucks are driverless now. So Rio Tinto's mines up in the Pilbara, there's a whole lot of guys sitting near Perth Airport with little joysticks playing computer games, but actually they're moving trucks around the mine. So in those specific, somewhat controlled environments, we're going to see it happen. It's very hard to get a vehicle down Oxford Street with a driver without hitting someone. I'm not convinced that we know how to manage the transition from, dri from driver to driverless. I'm not convinced we know how to manage... Uh, insurance and uh, liability. Um, I mean, for example, the software of a driverless car has to make choices as to if there's an old person and a child crossing the road and they're going to hit one of them, which one do they hit? So the, the person who writes the software makes that decision. Who's liable when someone's killed? Is it the guy who wrote the software? Yeah, I think they're trying to um, crowdsource you know, they're having votes on those particular decisions that have to be made. And it's interesting because the moral judgment goes from the driver to the coder. It's really interesting because different countries have different priorities. So some guys will, some countries will say, let the old person go. And another country will say, let the tramp go. Do you know what I mean? Let the, the one who contributes the least to society go. So different Different societies have different attitudes. It's very interesting. I th I, that, that's part of a bigger trend to somewhere else where the laws of the land are no longer made by elected officials, but by coders and individuals have to abide not so much by the laws of the land, but by the rules of the platform. Um, so, for example, you know, whether certain type of free speech is allowed in a country or not is by the by. It's not allowed on Twitter or it's not allowed on Facebook and you have to abide by the laws of Twitter or Facebook. That's a simplified example. Yes. 
But I think the one with the driverless cars, it's not the technology, it's the int- which the technology is there now, but it's sort of the interface between the technology and the real world. It's the interface between technology and human beings and, and trying to, to balance that. So, look, I'm happy to be proven wrong on that, although driverless buses, you'd think I'd like that because I wouldn't have to deal with unions and I wouldn't have a whole lot of employees. But actually, when buses are driverless, I'll be competing with Amazon or Facebook because it'll just be a giant network and we won't be able to compete. Yeah. We already have driverless trains, don't we? Yeah, driverless trains are great. They're much safer than um, than trains with drivers on them. They're, they're faster and safer. But, of course, it's a very controlled environment, and, and that's the problem with the public space. So that's why mines and trucks on freeways, I can see that. I'm just not convinced on public roads with crazy people. You know, you can't model the way a kangaroo jumps. So they'll never, they'll never make it in Australia because they haven't worked out when a kangaroo hits the ground which way it goes next. So that's a, that's a worry for Australia. We're going to be laggards when it comes to driverless cars because of the kangaroos hopping around. Very interesting. Now, Juliet, you have been silent for too long. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> I can't bear it. You know I'm not good on that. You know, on this subject of the future of transport, why don't you chime in with, with some thoughts and some questions if you have any? I, I do indeed. I, I have many views. So obviously I met Neil at the height of, you know, transport was booming in London. It was heaving. I live in London. I commute into the office. You know, I am one of those tube tube people squashed in there. Um and and to me, it has changed. I am still going on the underground through the pandemic. Um I find it actually really pleasurable now going on the underground. And like Neil explains on, on the aeroplanes, so pleasurable. And I remember meeting an old man when airline travel began and it was a luxury. And, you know, you had space and all of that. And we've converted into mass transport. How many people can we fit on this to travel? And to me now, actually, I feel we're going back in history that it'll actually be a lovely experience to travel on public transport. But Neil, did you ever envisage it would end up like this? No, our our whole decision to come to London was because of population growth in London, which is now reversed. Uh, steady growth in the bus system, which is now reversed, Uh, growth in employment in London, which is now reversed. So um, don't ask me to make any predictions because um, three out of three core predictions that made made our investment decision have all proven to be wrong. Yeah, I mean, people might claim to have predicted that there would be a pandemic, but nobody predicted COVID. And it's not like you know, you can foresee, you can look at technology and you can say this is going to happen, but you can't, you, nobody could have predicted COVID. And not only could, nobody could have predicted the way that people would react to it and the way that governments would react and the legislation that followed. Well, I think we still don't know too. I think um, we don't know what the world's going to look like as we come out of this. And so talk of new normal and the rest of it, I think is highly speculative. We don't know how people will change psychologically, how work will change, how entertainment will change. Is the era of cheap travel over? I suspect so, yeah. 
I suspect so. You know, the days when you could buy an EasyJet flight to Spain for 25 quid. And I noticed, by the way, that the train line, which is where I buy all my train tickets, it used to be that if you bought a train ticket, for example, to London, to Edinburgh or London, to Bristol, a certain amount of time in advance, you could get a cheap ticket. That's gone. And the same on the buses. My son, he's at university in Bristol. The, the, the cheap bus fare to Bristol has gone. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of assumptions in the airline industry of eternal growth. And because it's always going to grow, you can lose money in the short term because you're going to get the jackpot in the long term. I, I don't think the banks are going to finance those assumptions anymore. I think um wouldn't surprise me if a quarter of the planes out there never get back in the air again. And uh, I don't think, I think it's going to cost a lot more, especially long distance. I think, um, you know, maybe Spain will survive, but cheap tickets to... Um, to the US or to Chile or to China, I think that's going to be a very tough market for the airlines and they're going to give you good service and charge you accordingly. Of course, Juliet, when air travel was luxurious, it cost about a year's wage to go from London to Australia. The average, that, that was the fare before the, um, the jets came in. So... I met an amazing man that used to be the, like the carrier pigeon in the days before, you know, you could rely fully on post or, you know, how long stuff took to ship. And he basically flew all around the world delivering really important confidential documents in his suitcase. And his description of early travel and the luxury and stuff, but he obviously wasn't paying for it. So we did get into the the chat on costs. But yeah, I, I can't see. I mean, if you look at Qantas, it blew my mind when this all started, that Qantas was obviously a local Australian airline, then started building internationally. And they've completely pulled back and will only be local. Um, I think things will change. And I think probably we've taken it all for granted, our ability to get on, go places, do as we please whenever we like to some extent. But Neil, you know, you have always given me amazing knowledge about transport, what is happening, what is going on. Obviously, maybe London now doesn't have such a big problem of how we're going to fit more people. How perhaps that's now resolved that we don't need to increase capacity. Um, and in fact, it'll be more pleasurable on, on public transport, on the buses, all of those things. Um, but I know as a result of your successful business, you have always been incredibly good at giving back, dealing with, with tricky scenarios and have some pretty good war stories. So talk to me or explain um, your charity and what you're up to. I, I enjoy Africa. Not everyone likes Africa. Not everyone likes the, the sort of um, uncertainties and the level of chaos and the risk and the rest of it. I have always found it a, an antidote to corporate life. So if you go to the Congo for a month, no one bothers you because they assume you're probably dead. So you actually have this opportunity to, to get out of the pressure, the rat race to a degree. I have been involved in the Congo in particular for now nearly 15 years. And our involvement there is basically to help rebuild what you might call civic society, that part of life that is not government, that is not business, but actually is often the glue in a community that holds things together. And we are, uh, we build and uh, help support uh, colleges 
the leadership training colleges that are linked to the Anglican Church. I had two proposals I'm working on just today, and one is um, one is in the Sudan, which has recently opened up, so you can do things there that you haven't been able to do for the last 20 years. And another project is in uh, northern Mozambique, which is going through some uh, very difficult uh, Al-Qaeda-type problems at present. But this is, I wouldn't say it's fun, but it's certainly not guilt, right? I do these things because I enjoy them. I, I like the people and I like the balance. I've had a successful business career and I'm at a point where I can uh, balance that out. But it's also fun. I mean, I, I sometimes, you know, it's a sort of form of adventure tourism. You know, it's, um, it, it's I see things that no one ever sees. Uh, because you actually get deep into the communities and you get to know people quite closely and see what's really going on. Do you feel safe when you're there? I'm with people I trust and to the extent that they know what they're doing. I mean, if you're in a single-engine plane flying around the Congo, there's some risk. Itineraries get changed at a day's notice because some area may not be safe. You see a lot of guns. And the main thing is you've got nothing to fall back on. So you've got no medical system, no police system, no legal system. So you don't want things to go wrong. How do you even go about getting into a war-torn area? Well, these are not normally war-torn. They're post-conflict. So you're really going in. Because what happens with a conflict is when the conflict's on, there's lots of people are interested in it. Um, and soon after it ends, lots of people are interested in it. And then a more interesting conflict breaks out somewhere else. So the whole sort of aid heads off to the new one. And, and that's, when the, that's when things hit the fan because everything's wrecked. The economy's wrecked. The buildings are wrecked. There are a lot of people injured. There's those things. And, and that's really where we try to come in and help rebuild infrastructure and, and help get training programs back on back online because the disruption has destroyed those things. May have destroyed the buildings, may have killed the people who were leading the programs. So it's a matter of coming in and, and just giving people a helping hand to get back on their feet. I, I agree that one of my issues with news and conflict is we're very, we listen here and now and we're interested and then we move on. And, and you're right, nobody swoops in and carries on building a long term. How are we going to rebuild these places? So I think it's admirable what you do and in continuing to do that because it, it's so needed. It's so required out there. It is crazy, the stuff. Are you concerned about the UK? Yes. I can't envisage a situation where we would invest more money in the UK. We, um, we've expanded in Singapore, we're expanding in Australia, and we've got um, other interests in that part of the world. But it's very hard commercially, I think, to pull money out of a place like Australia and put it in a place like the UK. If some kind of free movement returned and people were able to travel again, would, you, would that change your mind? No, I, I think I want to see how the debt problem works out. I mean, the, the areas where we do business are all dependent on some level of government funding. And I just don't know where government funding is going to go. I think we are in fairyland right now. And um, I just don't know what's going to kick back. I mean, to give an example, we run a lot of buses in London 
and most of them are empty most of the time. If you have a situation where running a lot of buses with very, very few people on them, now there's a reason why that's happening, but it's not going to be there in a year's time. You know, something is going to happen. So more people will come back for sure. Didn't Boris just start some new initiative recently where he where he spent a load of money on buses? It might have been outside of London, but wasn't there some initiative? Yes. Yeah, there's been a few billion put up, um, but there's a few billion people use buses in the UK too. So it's, I mean, it's it's a good initiative, but I think if the fundamentals of a business go the wrong direction, and I think they have, government money only does so much. I think there's a huge rethink needed on passenger transport in the UK. It's all built on the assumption that it's a profitable activity. The rail franchises, the deregulated buses outside London, and that foundation is nonsense. So to invest in a business which is built on a foundation which is false is a courageous move that um, I don't think we would do. We would prefer to invest where we believe the underlying business model is viable. And I don't think it is here. Now, someone's going to make a lot of money out of it. It could be made to be profitable at some point, couldn't it? I mean, I mean, transport is a basic human need, so you'd think it, it would could be possible to become profitable. Is it, is it not a, a regulatory fault that it's impossible for it to be profitable? I mean, my, my experience as someone who uses all forms of transport is that it's horrendously overpriced for what it is. I think it's very hard to get public transport profitable because there are hidden subsidies in all the forms of competition. There, there, are, there are externalities that are not picked up. So if you pay a bus fare, it may feel expensive, but you don't really know how much you're paying to drive your car from A to B because you're meeting some of the costs, you're not meeting other costs. The other costs are more generalised, so you don't feel them at that point in time. So I think everywhere but the UK assumes that public transport is a bit like garbage collection in a sense. It's a bit like it's a utility. It's something that gets provided as a baseline to the community to make the community work and no one even tries to make money out of it. The UK is the exception and I think COVID has broken the model. That's why all the train companies are are nationalised. That's why the the buses are all on drip feed. I mean, I, I live in Oxford. There's buses running around Oxford all day that in theory surviving on the fares. But they're clearly not surviving on the fares. They're surviving. They're they're surviving on a short-term subsidy. Yeah, but surely, I mean, a, a free marketeer would say, "Well, stop size subsidising them. Remove as much regulation as possible. Let them die. You know, transport is a basic human need. Let some entrepreneurs come in. Let's stand out of their way and let's make transport work and let it stand by itself." It's never worked though. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher tried that in 1986 when she deregulated, and the main effect was the number of people using buses halved, the fares doubled, and it, it, it just didn't work. It, people found they made money more out of getting monopoly positions uh, through, through fierce competition and then pushing fares up. It, it didn't create what everyone thought it would create. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with private companies owning state monopolies. <laughs> it's a- it's a dangerous ground of of rip-off land. Um, I mean, let's talk about buses in London. I've never been convinced about buses in London over the last 20 or 30 years. They keep trying to revive them. And 
you know, you look at, you know, the, the bus enjoys this special status in London where it has a whole lane to itself. And then for, uh, cycles have now obtained a similar uh, standing. But you look at a bus lane and there'll be a bus going along the bus lane whenever the bus goes past. There's three people on the double-decker bus. It consumes an enormous amount of bus lane, um, enormous amount of fuel. The bus drives off, nobody on it. Meanwhile, there's a huge traffic jam in the other lane of things where where w- w- full of taxpaying citizens who are subsidising that empty bus lane. <laughs> you know, I just think buses are almost too big. I mean, surely my my ideal of the little driverless pods uh, are the solution to transport in London. And, you know, you look at something like Uber, like if for two of you in central London, it's cheaper to get an Uber. It costs you three, four, five quid to get an Uber. That's cheaper than two of you getting the tube. That's true. But of course, but of course Uber is subsidised by its shareholders. Sure. And by its drivers. But that's sort of capitalism. Well, it's a pretty rugged form of capitalism when you come to Uber. I think it's a, it's a rush to market dominance that didn't work. Well, it's, I mean, there are other competitors, aren't there? Lyft and Bolt and whatever they're called. Look, I enjoy using Uber too, but I think that price differential between Uber and taxis, there's no logic to it. And I think at the end of the day, that will evaporate. I think the cheap, wonderful Uber service we have, and it is, it's an amazing transport service, but I think it's built on artificial foundations. The high cost of the black cab, though, is not rip off black taxi drivers taking us all to the cleaners. It's them paying the cost of regulation and the cost of their license and the cost of their, you know, their privilege, basically. There's part of that, although it's not as bad in England as other places. So in uh, in a lot of cities, people pay hundreds and hundreds of thousands for the licence. Yeah. In the UK, it's more you pass the knowledge, or in London, you pass the knowledge. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the good thing Uber did is it made the taxi drivers accept um, credit cards, because I'm sure that never would have happened. Never would have happened without Uber. Forced them into the tax-paying bracket. That's right. <laughs> that must have hurt more than anything. Yeah. So, Neil, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions that we like to ask everybody. Um, and those questions are, what are you most excited about for the future of your business or maybe your charity? Well, I think in the business, because I'm still a major shareholder and I'm still on the board of the business, I think the most exciting thing we have to do, I think, is to navigate urbanisation in places other than Australia and find a way to contribute to urbanisation in more difficult countries. So we've navigated Australia, we've navigated England, we've navigated Singapore. Uh, I would be excited to think we could find a way of taking another step into the more difficult space. Because urbanisation, I think, is still going to be the mega trend of the next 50 years, regardless of COVID. And I think it's a very hard thing to get right. So that would be the business. In terms of the charity, I'm doing a lot of work on the content of what is taught in the colleges that we work. I'm not not happy with the content. And so we're financing various people in Australia, in the UK, and some in France to try to develop more effective content in those areas. And we're, we're taking our concept into different African environments. So I mentioned before into Mozambique, where people speak Portuguese, into the Sudan where people speak Arabic, 
I suppose learning, I, I'm fascinated by cross-cultural shifts. So things that work in one country, can you move them to another? And fascinated by the application of technology to education. Uh, we're developing a system that is all around downloads onto $100 smartphones and interactive teaching that way in areas where there's no internet. So, uh, and it's very interesting the way that's developing. So yeah, the application of technology to education and moving a concept cross-culturally, those two things keep me going. Fascinating, fascinating. It, it's big. Education and tech, ed tech is, is huge. I mean, I've seen a lot of it having, I've got the scars from doing homeschooling <laughs> at, a, at a low level. So to me, that's my experience. Uh, and, and I hope I don't have to do that again is all I can say. Um, and how about if there was one thing in the world that you could change over the next five years, what would it be? Well, let, let's say we just narrow that a little bit um, and, and look at what would there be, what sort of change would I like to see in the UK in the next five years? And I would like to see something that's not happening at present and we're probably going in the other direction. But I would like to see the country have a much greater degree of social cohesion, a much greater degree of people moving in a more common direction, a much greater, I don't mean a welfare response, but a much greater perception that the country has poverty problems and housing problems and health problems and still will probably have some wealth left um, after this year. And moving in that direction. Now, I know that's probably the opposite to the direction society is actually going because it seems to be fragmenting and going into extremes and the centre seems to be dying. And um, I, I am very unhappy with what I see in that sort of area. I could have stayed up all night and partied when um, Trump lost, although you didn't know when to have the party because no one could work out when he did actually lose. But um, I, I rejoice in his silence. Um, well, his Twitter account got turned off. So, yeah, maybe I'm the Neanderthal when it comes to this point, but um, I think society should be more cohesive and I think that actually makes everyone better off. I think that's really, really wise words, Neil. I mean, I, I feel that we need a moral code that, that goes globally, that I think that's what we have to work on, um, of just some common principles that we all adhere to. Um, I, I think it is sad the different directions we are all going in uh, and the fact that we need to come together and help. Can I give a little example? This is a funny one here because you mentioned moral code and if that's where we're going. I think we all have um, little facts in our business uh, philosophy that we learn. We pick something up on our experience and it measures it. And there's a, there's a Jewish concept which is in the Old Testament which is where it says that... Uh, when you're a farmer and you harvest your field, you should leave, you shouldn't harvest to the edge. You should leave what's on the edge and it describes it as for the, the widows and the orphans and the strangers, the uh, refugees. And I think that concept that efficiency is not everything in business, that there's a legitimacy about being generous. I, I think that, that's affected our business. I think we've always had a, a sense of generosity and we've still made a lot of money, right? We're still very successful business people. The bit we've lost has not been anything that's worried us. 
but it, it creates a spirit, I suppose. It creates a, a mindset if there's a level of generosity by people who are rich. And, and that, that little thing about not harvesting to the, to the wall, so that's, that's something that's a very old Jewish concept, but it's one that um, I like. Unfortunately, a persuasive and all-permeating tax system <laughs> that extracts every ounce that you earn has removed the ability of many to be generous <laughs> and simultaneously removed the responsibility for them to be generous. Until you work out in this strange country that if you make donations, the government adds 20%. It's the most bizarre thing that I've never seen anywhere in the world. But, um, yeah. And it all ends up in the pockets of the CEO <laughs> in the Great British Charity Scandal. Oh, it must be. <laughs> it is. It, I'm afraid. I mean, Juliet probably knows more about it than me, but the, the charity industry is an almighty racket that serves the people who are in the charity industry rather than the charities, the people that they're actually supposed to be helping. Yes. It's a huge generalisation, but it's, a, it's an almighty racket. There's been all sorts of books about it. No, it's big. It's big. I've had to do a number, but unfortunately, more and more charities are consolidating because of their operating costs, which makes it actually more of a problem. <laughs> um, but it, it's sad. Often we are left responsible. Um, and we were given actually a big task by a client to, to be responsible and distribute their wealth after they passed away to people in real need and to charities that will use it immediately. And we then had to do a big find the charities that were in real need and that money would actually go to. And we struggled. I mean, we looked at hundreds, but most have got serious reserves and serious money. Um, and I'm not going to name any of those, uh, but it seems... I'm happy to. <laughs> it seems in life they were willing to give more to animals than people, though, which always saddens me somewhat uh, that, that everybody seems to donate more more to those causes than, than to ourselves um, or as a human race. But yeah, it, it's a sad one. Neil, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us. And I mean, so it's so interesting, all the stuff. On, can, can I ask you one last question before we close? Because you mentioned it in your, in your penultimate closing answer there about the, despite COVID, cities are still going to grow. I mean, there was this huge mega trend until last year of, of growth of cities and, and, you know, from rural to urban. So let's just talk about that a little bit as we close the continuation of that. Well, I mean, that's mainly an Asian-African trend more than anything else. I mean, it happened here in Western Europe, but, you know, 100 years ago or 150 yeah. years ago. I, look, I think the things that are driving that, that are really... The, the, the poverty of opportunities in rural areas where, where you're stuck, where, where people, they can see that their father was a, had a few acres and all they're ever going to have is a few acres, but if they travel to the city, they might hit gold. Um, I think that... I dream of a few acres. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that... That ambition's going to continue, and I think things like um, people's access to social media, people's realisation that there is a world outside their village is just going to continue pushing people into the cities. I, I think there's a sense of opportunity in the cities. There's a sense that they can actually break out of something that is looking very boring. 
Are the Chinese designing their cities well or are they going too far too quickly and making an almost mess? I'm probably not an expert on that one, but they've um, any country that is boosting its car industry at the same time as boosting its cities runs into a risk of huge problems. Um, you can look at Brazil did that. They, they, they wanted the car industry to grow and so they structured cities that way and it doesn't work in a, in a poorer country. I went to Rio three or four years ago and I, I, I think there is no city in the world that has a better setting than Rio, you know, in yeah. between all those mountains, maybe Cape Town or La Paz in Bolivia or somewhere. But I mean, the setting of Rio is just astonishing. And it's extraordinarily ugly for somewhere in such a magnificent yeah. setting. And dangerous. So, look, I, I do think that, I personally think that trend will continue, but I don't think we're talking London and New York. We're talking Kinshasa. We're, we're, we're talking, um, uh, you know, we're talking India. We're talking Bangladesh. We're talking these kind of places where this trend is going to continue and where really COVID has just been one of a whole lot of things that, disrupt people and probably not the worst thing they face on a day-to-day basis. Well, great stuff. Neil Smith, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. That was this week's episode of Business Without and we'll be back with another episode at the same time next week. In the meantime, please do rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Biz Without BS. That's at B-I-Z without BS, where you'll find more helpful business content. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for us using the hashtags Biz Without BS or Ori Clark. Until next week, it's cheerio. Cheerio.